This is getting out of hand. Now there are two of them. Where's your innovation, huh? Sequels suck. Do the same thing. Everyone's happy. It's all about money, boys! Here we go again. Allow me to introduce you to your new Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher. Me. Gilderoy Lockhart, Order of Merlin, third class, honorary member of the Dark Force Defense League, and five times winner of Witch Weekly's Most Charming Smile Award. Hey guys, and welcome back to another episode of Franchise Fatigue. This is a show where we explore film series one movie at a time. I'm your host, James Hamrick, and as always, I am joined with my co-host, Gabe Green. What's going on? Together, you and I rate the front page. Hmm, true. I'm doing pretty well. Uh, very, very happy to be talking about this this film in particular. Like, I'm thrilled to talk about the series, but this one is, uh, well, half of them are ones I've really been looking forward to. <laughs> but uh, this one I've been championing for a long time, so I'm glad to be talking about it. Um, so, yes, this one is uh, the second film in the Harry Potter series, Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. Um, but before we talk about that, I want to ask you guys, if you enjoy the show, to please uh, take a moment to rate and review us on iTunes and subscribe while you're at it. And then um, like us on Facebook uh, to keep up to date with all the latest episodes uh, and uh, give feedback that can be end up on the show. And we got a little bit of feedback for this one. Um, so on Facebook, uh, James, no relation, um, said, even better than the first one, a worthy part of the series. And he's an intellectual. Friend of the show, Ryan Wall, uh he also may or may not be showing up later on in this series. Uh, you'll have to find out. Not if I can help it. <laughs> uh, he said, pretty underrated to borrow a term. Indeed. All right, so I'm uh, moving into the uh, main discussion. Got to get into the behind the scenes on this film. So Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets was published in the UK on July 2nd of 1998, which was a year after the publication of Sorcerer's Stone. And it didn't make it to America till the following year in June of 1999, which is interesting because I've Sorcerer's Stone would have already been out for a year. Maybe that was an intentional thing to pace it out. Cause I think afterwards they were pretty much day and date around the world for releases, but that's interesting that they were still having that rather significant gap between UK and American publishing. Um, and like its predecessor, it was acclaimed by both critics and readers alike. And when Warner Brothers went into, into production on Sorcerer's Stone, they were fully planning to make the whole series. There was talk about possibly having Chris Columbus direct all of them. Um, it was none of the, like, we'll put one out, see how it does, then maybe greenlight the next one. As Sorcerer's Stone was going into, into post-production, uh, Chamber of Secrets was going directly into, to, uh, into pre-production. Uh, Steve Cloves once again wrote the script, and uh, Chris Columbus returned to direct. Um, Frank Oz... Uh, like years later on some interview claimed he was approached to direct the film, but turned it down. I'm not, not sure at what stage that happened. Cause it all, it all from all, all the, all the behind the scenes stuff I, I've seen and read, it seemed like it was kind of a no brainer. Chris Columbus just kind of went directly into the second one. For the film's cast, uh, most of the primary uh, actors were coming back to reprise their roles, but we do get some iconic uh, additions with this one. The person who gives the line that we open the show with, uh, Kenneth Branagh, was cast as Gilderoy Lockhart. Um, is actually I would have liked to have seen him direct a Harry Potter film. That would have been cool. That would have been cool. I never even thought about that. He probably could have given us a good one. Give him uh, Goblet of Fire. <laughs> Can't be worse. Um, Hugh Grant was actually the first choice for the role. Um, however, as is often the case, there were scheduling conflicts. And Alan Cumming was also considered for it, but like I said, it, it eventually ended up going to Branna. 
Jason Isaacs appears as the only aforementioned uh, Lucius Malfoy, Draco's father. Gemma Jones appears as Madame Pomfrey. Uh, we get Christian Coulson as a very young Lord, Lord Voldemort, revealed uh, to be truly named Tom Marvolo Riddle. Mark Williams uh, joins the cast as Arthur Weasley, Ron's father. Uh, Shirley Henderson plays Moaning Myrtle. Miriam Margoyles appears as Pomona Sprout, and she would appear uh, for the rest of the series, I believe. Uh, Hugh Mitchell as Colin Creevy. Uh, Robert Hardy as Cornelius Fudge. She's also going to be in several more. Um, Toby Jones as Dobby. And this was news to me, Julian Glover as uh, Aragog. Interesting. The only other bit of casting news, like relevant casting news is... Um, Richard Harris obviously reprises his role here, uh, but this would be the last time he would play uh, the role of Dumbledore as he, he actually ended up passing away the same year that the, the film released. Yeah, and I believe he was, he was ill already during the production of this film. All right, so a filming began, actually, second unit filming began in early November of 2001, which is a, a few weeks before the first film was even released, but our principal photography began just three days after the release of the first film. Um, like the first film, it was primarily shot at the Leaves in Film Studios. Uh, Roger Pratt uh, replaced uh, John Seal as director of photography. He's done a lot of work with guys like Terry Gilliam, Mike Lee, Neil Jordan, and uh, Richard Attenborough. He also shot a movie called uh, Tim Burton's Batman. Um, it was kind of popular. Uh, Columbus opted to change his visual style here, going for a lot of handheld and steady cam. Um, learning his lesson from the previous film, he shot all the visual effects sequences at the beginning of production, so that the VFX houses would have time to work on the CGI throughout the entire filming and post-production. Because uh, one of his big regrets from the first film was how poorly a lot of the CGI turned out. And the funny result of that is you can pick out, uh, mainly because of Tom Felton, you can pick out which scenes were shot at the beginning. Because some, some of them Tom Felton looks like he's from Sorcerer's Stone. Then he like other scenes he's like a proper teenager. It's kind of funny. For the film score, uh, John Williams did return uh, to score. However, there was a... There's a bit of difference. It ended up being difficult for him to compose the entirety of it as he had just completed scoring Attack of the Clones, which is already its own kind of rushed process, uh, along with Minority Report, um, and work was just now starting on Catch Me If You Can. Um, and so he was, he was still working on the compositions, uh, but he did ask composer William Ross to finish the score if need be and just kind of adapt the existing Williams themes. Ultimately, uh, he was able to compose most, if not all, of the score. Um, however, Ross did end up conducting the, the sessions, the, the recording sessions themselves, and did retain an adaptation credit. Yeah, that's pretty much what Hans Zimmer does all the time. Yeah, lazy jerk. <laughs> hey, it works. Yeah, he's great. And the film, uh, the film had its world premiere at the Odeon Leicester Square on November 3rd, 2002, and then a UK and US release on November 15th. All right, James, so Chamber of Secrets, what's your story with this one? Uh, honestly, I feel like I could probably copy and paste my response um, in terms of like relationship with it from last episode. Because uh, like I said, it's these first two were the ones that I... In fact, this one, probably a lot more. I like, I did like this one a lot more as a kid. And I think it was probably played more as well because it is 
it's the the spookier movie. It's more more relevant for Halloween time, I guess. Um, and so I've, I've got a lot of memories of, you know, being excited for the spiders, the spider scenes. And this, like, I love giant monsters. And so like, like this is the one with the, the big snake at the end. I always got hyped for that. So I, I watched it quite a lot growing up. And then, yeah, like, like Sorcerer's Stone, I, I hadn't, I just didn't watch it for years and years. And then rewatched it with the last marathon um, where the, my relationship with them differs is, well, I guess maybe not even differs because just as, as a, like with a kid, as a kid, I, I preferred this one, but it was mostly just, you know, this, this has the cooler monsters because, you know, Lord of the Rings um, spoiled me with visual effects. And so even as a kid, I'm like, Fluffy looks kind of fake in Sorcerer's Stone <laughs> and that troll looks stupid. So like, no, that wasn't winning me over. But in this, I'm like, ah, the spider's pretty cool. And the basilisk is like freaking dope. So that's primarily why I liked it more as a kid. Now, I, I there's there's not as much of a difference between uh, my enjoyment as there is in yours with, with you uh, between Sorcerer's Stone and Chamber of Secrets. But I do definitely prefer this to the original um, for reasons that we're definitely going to get into. Yeah, so when I first saw, I, when I was reading the books, I would read the books and watch the movies. I was kind of disappointed by Sorcerer's Stone at first. Um, but then when I got around to Chamber of Secrets, it was pretty much everything that I wanted from the, you know, from the first movie and from these movies. Um, and I think it might be the one that I will randomly go back to the most. Like I, I don't often randomly re rewatch movies. Usually I'll, it'll be like part of, it'll be like in preparation for a sequel or I'll watch the whole series through. But I think this is the one that I've gone back a couple times and kind of watched independently. It's, it's very much kind of a comfort food movie for me. And yeah, we'll get into it, but I prefer this to the first in, I can't, I can't think of a single element from the first one that I prefer more. Um, and I just, it's, it's just significantly better. And, and something I'm noticing is I, like a lot of people will prefer the first film in the series, you know, cause it's, it's, it's the original one. It's the one that, you know, started it all. And a lot, a lot of people seem to be seeking out like originality, um, in film for me. I often find myself gravitating towards like the sequels that perfected the formula, you know, sequels like, um, you know, T2, Last Crusade, baby. Judgment Day, Last Crusade. That's the prime example, which there is a, uh, there's a screening of Last Crusade at a local theater tonight. And, uh, I'm very much wanting to, All right, <laughs> to well, let's make, make it snappy. out to that. Well, it's not, it's not for like another five hours, but, uh. I mean, who knows? The right we go. Say, this is you and Chamber of Secrets. We'll see how long this goes. <laughs> yeah, it's like, it's like that's kind of my philosophy. Like a lot of people, are like, oh, it's just more of the same. It's just kind of boring. Like, 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 like no, the, the first one started. It. This one is where everything just came together and in perfection. Yeah, actually, let's get into that. Um, James, do you, so do you notice a significant di difference in the filmmaking or improvement or or, or worsening at all? Like, did you, do you? Are you seeing what I'm seeing as far as like the, the upgrade in filmmaking? Yeah. So when we talked about Sorcerer's Stone, we said it has a very 80s quality to it. And whenever I think about some of the 80s movies, so I, I love Goonies, but I think I love it because of like the cast and and the tone. Like I, who directs that? Is that Richard Donner? Richard Donner. Yeah. I'm uh, written by Chris Columbus. 
Oh, there you go. Oh, that's right. We got into that lesson. Um, I'm not the biggest fan of Donner as a director. How dare you? <laughs> I know it's sacrilege. Um, yeah, it just he doesn't super do it for me. And so, like with the Goonies, it's it's like I I don't there's there's a I, I don't think the direction is bad, but it's not really what makes me love it. And that was kind of the case with Sorcerer's Stone, where it's like it's these kids and their chemistry, and and then, you know they're surrounded by incredible production design and this really incredible world. And so there you you get to, you still get this tone, despite serviceable direction. Um, but with Chamber of Secrets, and I won't get too much into this unless, well, maybe now is the time to talk about the, the, the thing that really helps me know that I prefer this quite a bit more, maybe not quite a bit more, but definitely more than Sorcerer's Stone is the atmosphere. And I think his direction is a big reason for this change in like, intent an intentionally created atmosphere just the way he moves the cameras the way he lets tension kind of play out longer in scenes like he'll just he'll he'll let the camera hold on images or faces as like the creepy chamber of secrets music plays and mm. it, like then he does like to me he does cooler things with, like camera angles and composition and dutch angles he, and there's lots of those cool kind of windy twisty dutch angles and stuff uh, like the moving ones are really neat it's just like it, it's the direction feels active in creating the environment and the feel and tone and atmosphere in a way that it wasn't completely absent in in doing in the first one with but just definitely to a lesser degree yeah he he, he him he and uh roger pratt they, they opted for a lot of kind of handheld steady cam stuff and he really likes to allow scenes to play out in these like big moving masters where you'll have the three characters walking down one of the beautiful corridors and it's just, it'll just be a long shot. Characters will come in and out and the dialogue is going over each other. Like it's, it's, it's creating like that, that a feeling of chemistry and just momentum that it's not even about, about the camera just it's, <laughs> just staging the actors, you know, and you know, you come in here and, and, and just putting it all together because you can't edit that. You have to create all. It's like, it's like directing a play in a lot of ways, and he's he's just really good in creating that kind of internal energy in the scenes, which he couldn't in the first film because the kids couldn't act and get through a scene without looking at the camera. So here, yeah, the kid the kids can act. So he's just he's kind of going all out. Um, and the cinematography, I just find it so rich. The first film, John Seal is an incredible cinematographer, but there were times where it felt a little BBC-ish. I think this is partly like they were still perfecting the production design. Sometimes it felt like they just found an old castle wall in England. Like the, the flying lesson looks like they're on some kind of grassy lawn. <laughs> okay. In front of I a, had the same thought. Building. It's really funny to hear you say that. It's like, it's like BBC. We're, we're, we're kind of in, in BBC land. And particularly I think the, the nights, the dark the scenes in the dark are kind of cheapish looking. Uh, here, I feel like they actually went out and like graded, gave the film a really good grade. The scenes in the but dark the way, here are incredible. Yeah, the way Roger Pratt lights the sets, like you could just you could see every nook and cranny and crevice, and oh my gosh, Stuart Craig sets like each one of them looks like twice as big in this one, 
and the camera work is making full use of that. You can just you can see so far. There's just so much depth and richness of color and composition and light. It's 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 very simple and basic, you know, strong classical filmmaking, but using all the tools to make just this these simple images look just rich. Yeah, it's like whenever I think of Sorcerer's Stone, I I kind of just think about the the vibe of them i'm like or, or i, I kind of i think about events that happen like oh yeah that's that's the one with the the first game and blah 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 but like whenever i think about chamber of secrets the the mental image i have is just long shots down dark corridors with like <laughs> torches on the side like i have i have those very strong vivid images of like these incredibly designed hallways and like sneaking around like puddles in the side so many hallways i love and that like talking about production design i'm kind of tempted to say that this is my favorite depiction of hogwarts in the series how did this not get a nomination oh that's depressing it should have it's not just reusing stuff there are so many new locations and sets yeah things and like whenever we're talking about uh just the magic of of hedwig's theme last episode and you know how it all all of the many emotions that it it's able to capture to me this is this is the visual accompaniment of all of that where it's like hogwarts as a physical location this time is it's cool but it's dark and it's mysterious and like it's inviting but it's inviting with kind of unease and it's mm-hmm. i don't know like the all all of the mystery and intrigue and danger but but still fun like everything there like i feel like i could just take all of the things that i said about that theme and apply it here because it's it is fun but it's never fun without a sense of danger and it's because we're always we're going through these darkly lit corridors or, you know, walking through this really like well-defined creepy forest and, and even just being out on the grounds at night, like going over to Hagrid's at night is like, as a kid, I, I remember being like, Oh, this is, this, they got They got to sneak out. And like, I bundle a blanket around me. As I want. <laughs> like, it's just, it just looks and feels right and cinematic and everything yeah. it should. Like there's there's so many new sets like the Burrow, Diagon Alley. We get a Borgen and Burks and Flourish and Blots. Uh, the new Hogwarts design is updated a bit. Oh, the, the the CGI helicopter shots going around it. Like I, I don't care if it's CGI. I love it. Um, Greenhouse three, Lockhart's classroom. You got the giant dragon skeleton hanging from the ceiling. Um, just the hallways. We spend so many time, so much. Of these the exposition is the kids walking through hallways, but those hallways are beautiful. And I think that's part of why, like, this is my favorite depiction of Hogwarts, is because because we still haven't like gotten to the constant pervasive sense of danger with uh, with um, Voldemort's return. It's like the the plot is still. It's like sort of certain that the plot is still happening hand in hand with just like day to day classwork, and mm. so we're just it, it captures that sense of the book of like, well, we're walking to potions, but let me tell you what happened here. And so we're like, the the plot is constantly playing out against the backdrop of the classrooms and the hallways and the dorms and like every. It just it feels like Hogwarts is ever present in a really cool, in a. In a I mean, we talk about it. There's so many halls, and there are, but there's still a lot of variety. Like you said, we get new classrooms, we get other sides of the grounds, we get like it's it's a lot of familiar stuff and a lot of 
repetitive visuals, but repetitive in a good way with new locations. I don't know. It's just, it's, it's really cool. I mean, I wasn't even done reading my list. Like there's like Moni Myrtle's bathroom. Like they, they didn't have to go this, yeah. you know, go all out this far, you know, for a bathroom, but they do. Uh, the, the sink the sink, in that, thing. that thing is, <laughs> that thing is awesome. Your Dumbledore's, Dumbledore's office, the Forbidden Forest, and I think possibly the crowning achievement for this entire series, the Chamber of Secrets itself, which mm-hmm. we'll talk about later. But holy crap! Like I, I'm, I'm baffled by the magnitude of that set. And also, there's water in. Like, how on earth did they even do that? Um. So for this one, I think there's so much to cover. I think the quickest way would just be to go through um scene by scene. Um. So we open with the dinner party. Uh, <laughs> just the Dursleys. <laughs> Uh, they're they're great. Um, uh, the, 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 you know, like Harry's line, you know, I'll be in my bedroom making no noise, pretending that I don't exist. Um, <laughs> one of my favorite memes is uh, it's like a you know, what will you be doing for for uh, this year for Valentine's Day? It's like <laughs> I'll be in my bedroom making no noise, pretending I don't exist. Um, yeah, and so you know, Dobby comes in, and Do- Dobby is actually a Dobby's a really good effect for two thousand two. You know, he's not quite Gollum level, and you can tell you no, know, he's CGI, but. He interacts well with the environment, I think. Yeah, but he and he, he's always doing something. Like if you watch him in the background, he's always just like playing around or reacting to something. He, like he feels like a living person. People find I don't. Do you find Dobby irritating? Like a lot of people hate Dobby, but I love the guy. I I mean he. I feel like I. I react to him in the way that Harry reacts to him, which is like. <laughs> In the initial scene, even now knowing everything that happens in the series, in the initial scene, you're like, would you shut up? Like, I I know, like, I have the knowledge that you're doing this to save his life. But, like, the screaming and the banging, I'm like, you gotta, you gotta stop. But, like, <laughs> it's not a criticism because it, I don't know, I think the movie, like, these movies do a good job of really centering the POV with with Harry that, like, I, I'm, I'm sharing in his frustration. But, I also think that's the intention within that scene and, you know, with the reveal in this movie. And then as he shows up in later movies, I, I mean, I love, I love him as we are meant to love him. I just, I love how pathetically misguided he is. <laughs> like, If you get expelled from school, you can't be in danger. <laughs> You're not killed. You just grievously injure you. So you have to go away. <laughs> he's trying to save his life. He's a good oh, he's guy. a good guy. For <laughs> sure. And then you just keep Durs, uh, Vernon Dursley keeps coming up. You just ruined the punchline of my Japanese golfer joke. <laughs> the, the visual gag of of a uh, Harry <laughs> trying to close the door as a, of the uh, wardrobe uh, as it keeps popping open, <laughs> like something about just the way he plays that I find really funny. Yeah, so that's he's great. Um, then we have the flying car, uh, the flying Ford Angular, uh, Anglia. It's just that look. That's a really good effect and. I think I think it's like seventy five percent sold by just the sound design. I love the grinding mm. gears as they're kind of shifting around, and the, the sound of the motor, just the way it kind of shifts. It kind of like floats through the air. It never quite stays still. Uh, it just looks so good. But that whole sequence is so joyful as you know, that that dramatic zoom in as the Dursleys wake up from the crash and they're banging on the door and they're trying to get out and he falls out the window and serves him right and as they're flying away by the way happy birthday harry it's like like it's giving me that joyful feeling i get from reading the book when the when these sequences happen yeah i mean that that scene is just it's iconic 
like the, the image of them in the in the car in front of the train ron's ron's terrified look on the, in the past like it's <laughs> it's we all immediately recognize it um and yeah that i'm glad that line whenever he gets it like he's able to escape and he tells him happy birthday it's like the it's like giving Finn his name in The Force Awakens. It's just, it's this moment of like, mm. I'm just having, like, this is just fun. Like, everything about this is like making me feel good. Uh, and, you know, because them as characters is just like, I, for whatever flaws it may have, I am genuinely endeared to these people by the end of Sorcerer's Stone. And so, like, to, to have Ron and the, you know, the Weasley twins pull me back in and wish me happy. Like it's just in, like pulling me in and inviting me back into the, back into the story. It's like, ah, oh, this mm-hmm. is, this is fun. Yeah. And I mentioned that it's just like reading the book. I think that that is the biggest thing I love about this film is that the, the, with the books being so long and so involved, I think the difficulty in so many of the films is fitting in enough of the story to be recognizable while also, you know, having a decent pace and cutting out all the various other plot lines that, you know, don't quite matter as much. And we mentioned with the first film, if they kind of feel like a slideshow sometimes we're like, we're just getting to the important scenes. We're rushing through them and we're not really just luxuriating in the world of Harry Potter, the way the books allow us to. I think this film is the primary exception where I actually get the feeling of what it's like reading the book because we, we go through all the scenes, but, but plot is always happening. Like this film is, is it's so long, but so well paced at least structurally in how like every scene there's something either character based or plot based like in the first film like they go to different classes and it feels like the classes are just kind of showing off oh look we're learning magic whereas here you know we have the transfiguration class but then that's McGonagall telling us about the chamber of secrets um we have the mandrake class but that's about the mandrakes which are they're going to come in to you know to heal the petrified people like we we get the joy of the classes and the joy of you know you know breakfast in the great in the great hall but it's all plot driven so we get to just kind of luxuriate in what it's like to read the books and that's that's just such a valuable feeling to me because it's for as much as i love this series it is kind of rare to just feel like we're living a day-to-day life you know with harry potter in hogwarts because why wouldn't you want to do that yeah then we uh, make we go to the burrow and which is just a wonderful set um they, they make it feel so homey and inviting and we get a bit more of Molly Weasley. Just this is a sequence of her yelling at her children, like, "Where have you been? Oh, Harry dear, how wonderful to see you. Empty beds, no note." Like, just you know, going back and forth. You know, I have to make this orphan child feel invited, but also <laughs> my boys need to be dealt with. And and Julie Walters is just so good at that, but being both so kind and inviting and motherly, but also the kind of mother that you don't want to cross and just the, the environment of the Weasley's home. I, I, I don't know if I mentioned it, but I grew up in a family of 13 children. I have 10 younger siblings. So that kind of lively, wonderful chaos that you get in a big family, uh, is I think very well captured here. You have the breakfast scene and Jenny, Jenny's running and <laughs> tearing out terrified because her crush is here. And, and Mr. Weasley bursts in and like, oh, strange child, it's not mine. Who are you? 
and like just that kind of lively chaos i think it's really well captured it makes it makes the burrow such a wonderful second home for harry um that he you, know, you you get why he would so much rather spend time here well he would rather spend time anywhere but this place yeah. in particular is is quite wonderful yeah and you know just we, we talked about how wonderful julie walters was um in sorcerer's stone and she's obviously wonderful again here and then she's joined by mark williams so it's like if she's like this perfect mother character like he's he's the counterpart he's He's just this wonderful dad. Like they play all the morning Weasleys. Like I love the, I love the way they lean into like mom and dad kind of tropes of, you know, like, Oh, you're supposed to give them a stern talking to. And you know, like the, they took out the car. How was it? Like, it's just, just... <laughs> that was very wrong boys. Very wrong. Indeed. It's... Just the, his line delivery. Of, and who are you? <laughs> he's just, he's like, he's like, you're the, your best friend's perfect dad. Like he's like that. You, you just love going over there because he's, he's not a, like, he's the opposite of a jerk. He's just so, he's just such a, a fun, lovable, endearing, but also like responsible father. I don't know. He's just such a, he's got such a delightful characterization in this. And, and I think he really is able to capture that in the performance. His reaction to Harry you're saying the wrong, you're diagonally. What do you say? Diagonally. He just like puts his hand on his hips like, great. <laughs> he's, a, he's a great Again. physical performer too. Like his body language, his facial expressions, it's it's great. And we are introduced uh, to Gildor Lockhart as played by Kenneth Branagh, uh, an actor who I love a lot. And uh, this film is absolutely no exception. Um, it's it's the character is so ridiculous and over the top, but he finds just the right pitch. Uh, I, I love where like he's like smiling at the crowd and just reaches over, grabs Harry's arm, and yanks him in for the picture. Like just that that balance of the, the charm, but also the total ruthlessness. Um, he's got that smile. Mm-hmm. And then we get uh, the introduction of a uh, one Lucius Malfoy, played by the the great Jason Isaacs, who here is is in, like in full Tavington mode. Uh, you see, you see the Patriot, right? Yeah. Okay, like he, he's completely in that. And the thing there's there's so many good things about uh, about Isaacs as Lucius Malfoy, but I think my favorite is the fact that he doesn't change his tone and tenor at all when dealing with children like normally even evil people when they're talking to children they kind of change you know they tone it down a little bit even if they're evil and condescending they'll at least acknowledge this is a child i'm talking to <laughs> but i think lucius gets even more evil <laughs> when he's dealing with children the, the amount of venom he's putting into his lines you know, let's see red hair vacant expressions tatty secondhand books you must be the weasleys ah weasley senior his it's like every word just like kind of curls out of his mouth like like just it's just dripping with mean nastiness and but it's like it's like the the kind of posh nastiness oh, i love him he's incredible now now draco play nicely and and uh, this is probably a good time to mention the kid actors like the fact that they, they can all kind of stand up to someone as with so much presence and just force of personality as uh, Isaac has Malfoy uh, is kind of impressive, particularly in the final scene between the two, with between Radcliffe and um and uh, Isaacs, I think is great. But just 
I, I think that, that I mentioned a lot last week how I couldn't I had a hard time connecting with the first, the first film because none of the children could act. You know, they, they were they were fun and big and you know boisterous and lively, but they weren't really giving performances. I feel I feel like that's entirely changed where here, like you can see, like they're making choices, they're doing things, like they're 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 adding you know emphasis to certain words, like they're they're portraying characters, and you know they're still child actors and they're not perfect, but I I, I am fully able to to you know to get into the these 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 act these child actors as characters first and foremost in this film, and that that also along with the, you know the improved filmmaking goes so far to making this just a more enjoyable and um, engaging film. Let me go to the train station, and I, I love I love that they keep they're bringing back uh, the same guard for the actor. I think his name's Harry Taylor. It's like <laughs> I, think, I think he also comes back if I'm not mistaken in Deathly Hollows. Like he's got he got three days of work out of Harry Potter. Um, just that kind of continuity is fun, uh, and it just the the childlike logic of oh we can't get on the train, so obviously we need to steal the car and fly there. And like it's done, it's really well done in the books, and I think it's done well here. Like, oh no! Like, what if we miss the train? We won't be able to make the Hogwarts. Like, the 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 the, the cause and effect that have had happens in a child's mind. It makes no sense. It's absolutely stupid, but it's 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 so uh, convincing in the moment. Uh, it's I, I love when children's you know, children's stories get that right. Yeah, and like I said, I mean, I already kind of talked about this with the the initial like rescuing Harry, but there's just something so much fun about flying around in this thing. Mm -hmm. And the, there's like breaking through the clouds and seeing the Hogwarts express. Like, it's just, it's so cool. Like it's, it's, it's the ultimate, like it, it's fantasy, everything cool about like high fantasy like this. And it looks really good too. Um, you, can, you can see that they got a lot of live action plates you know, just to put the car in. Do more of that. Effects look so much better when you do. And it's it's like a, a a legitimate sequence. It's not just oh, and now we're here, but like everything with the train is really fun. Like it being behind them, that's great. Landing <laughs> in the train, like, double I'm, take as the train comes up. <laughs> uh, you know, landing in the Whomping Willow and like having to escape there, and just seeing the car whimper away. Like it's 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 a whole. It's one of those moments where like the book gives you a feeling because like this is its own little adventure itself. And the movie really captures that where it's like, it's, we, we had this whole, it's, it's not just a, a little montage or a quick boom, boom, but it's, it's something you remember by the end of it. And this leads to a wonderful Snape scene um, where he just gets to be evil. You, know, you are seen by no less than six models. And, and, we talk. Uh, one thing I want to talk about here is I forgot to talk about the first time, but th this type of fantasy we have like some fantasy is like it's an entirely alternate reality like Middle Earth, or you have like Narnia or or um, Alice in Wonderland where it's like in, in our world, but they go into an alternate reality. Th this is the kind of the, the the hidden magical society within our world. H how do you think the this this the the books and film series functions, you know, as that that form of fantasy? Do you think it's believable as far as the integration into, you know, our quote-unquote real world? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's kind of vaguely defined at first, and in, in ways like it, it doesn't it doesn't super call itself into attention or like call attention to itself, but um, 
like as you go on, the more you learn about like concealment and protection charms and and illusions and like when we see it in Goblet of Fire and what they do at the field, like it though any sort of questions you might have at the beginning of the series, both with the books and the films, at least for me, I think maybe there are moments where you're like, well, how does this work? By the end of the series, I, I think it does a pretty good job of covering its bases in terms of how this world is able to function and, and be alive. Mm -hmm. yeah, this, this one does a good job of like, of like with the statute, the statute of secrecy and the fear, like multiple times, like Mrs. Reese, like you could have been seen or, or here where like you, you've risked the exposure of our world. Like it's, it's treated as something very important to, you know, to maintain secrecy from the muggles. I think it's, probably a bit better established here as far as like the relationship between the, the muggle world and the wizarding world um then another scene i want to mention is, is the, the scene where they're, they're going out to practice quidditch and uh, we get some more wonderful lines from uh sean biggerstaff with his beautiful accent uh and they, they go and get into the confrontation with the um the slytherin team and uh and malfoy calls hermione a mudblood and the Crazy thing is, like, I, I don't, don't ever think about it, but your Chambers, Chamber of Secrets is really pretty much a story about racism. Like, it's baked into the every aspect of the film where the, the the monster in the Chamber of Secrets is coming out, you know, to hunt Muggleborns. Like, that's the that's the entire thing. It's this allegory about you know racism and um, the kind of false sense of superiority of the purebloods, um, and. I feel so bad for Ron. Like he's he's standing up for a friend, and he ends up puking slugs for hours. But I remember Grin is so funny about it. Let's <laughs> say he's he's the perfect actor to ask pretend to throw up slugs. Uh, it's uh, yeah, it's really well done. <laughs> it's really well done because I like I get squeamish every time. <laughs> this calls for specialist equipment, and he plops down a bucket. <laughs> I love Hagrid. Um, and we get a really good scene from uh, Emma Watson as she explains what mudblood means. But the real MVP of the scene is Robbie Coltrane's a, don't you think on it, Hermione. Don't you think on it for one minute. And just the the beautiful kindness that he radiates in that moment. And if you think about it, knowing the rest of the series, like, he knows exactly what she's feeling, what she's going through. Like he, he's had it worse his, his entire life. You're being half giant spoilers. Um, like he's <sighs> been, he's been that outcast that everyone kind of all the purebloods treat like scum and kind of him going out of his way to, you know, to comfort this little girl. And just, it's a really lovely moment between them. Yeah. And, and you know, it, it, it's a very simple, you know, racism allegory oh you know the you know the, the the racist ones they're all super evil and you know <laughs> they're the malfoys and and all the you know the, the other ones they're all super nice like it's, it's simple but it, it's really effectively told i think you know for for the age of the audience um There's, yeah that that's what i think is important as well is, is understanding the audience where like you, you maybe not get into the the nuances and the fact that you know maybe not everybody is gonna be this like wizarding version of a nazi uh -huh. uh, but, but i mean it's a kids movie like and you know based off of the kids book and so i think it's i think it's done tastefully in in the a presentation presentation of you know these kinds of ideas yeah it gets a very good picture of just the arbitrary stupidity of it all 
Yeah, but like this is going to be this particular is going to be one of the central kind of themes of the entire series. Um, you know, Vol- Voldemort's hatred of mudbloods and halfbloods is going to, you know, particularly once you get to the last book, it's, it's a, a dry, real driving force in in his goals. Um, and you know, wizarding superiority, he wants to rule the Muggles, all that, all that stuff. Um, is you know is very much you know it, it's introduced here, but later on expanded. I think this this film does a very good job of, of establishing that. And it's interesting like, we don't get to the first attack until forty three minutes into the movie. And, but I, I think it, this is a great example of of how well paced this movie is for me because all the previous scenes, even though they're not you know they're not dealing with the main plot of, of and mystery of you know what is the creature in the chamber of secrets there it's all setting up stuff like you know, the diagon alley where you're setting up the, you know lucius malfoy in the diary and and you know the, the um you know the hatred of muggles um and then it seems like that where we're establishing you know just like how what it means to the muggleborns to be living in this world like the all these scenes are setting up little bits of plot. And so once the Chamber of Secrets is open, we can just dive right into that. And it just, it just feels, and it's an interesting thing is it feels like that those first 43 minutes at Hogwarts, it honestly feels like one day we go through like, we go through herbology and, uh, and defense against the dark arts and, uh, and the Quidditch practice, like all of that's happening, but it's so well edited and paced that it just, it just feels like, Oh, this was a one really long eventful first day all the way into his detention with a uh, Gildor Lockhart. Which is something that the first film was missing so bad, where every scene was like, "Here's a scene," then boom, next scene. Be- because of of lack of like connectivity between the scenes, it feels like we see this scene and then we just start with this scene. It these could be the next day, or this could be the next class. This could be class the next day. This could be class next week. Like it's it does kind of it feels like we're getting these class these classes or these scenes kind of in a vacuum with no real temporal relationship with each other. Yeah. Um, <laughs> speaking of, of the uh, detention with Gilderoy Lockhart, <laughs> celebrity is as celebrity does. Remember that Harry. Time flies when you're having fun. I think like the, with the attack, we get the, uh, the creepy voice going through the walls. I think that's a really well done effect. Um, the, the Dutch yeah. angles as Harry's kind of like walking along the walls. Um, and just the Love it. yeah, and the atmosphere around the scenes where you just the water's all over the floor and you have the little splashing and the torchlight and the, just the hanging cat and the blood in the walls. This movie it's, has atmosphere for days. It's real. It's there's such great atmosphere and like just it's such a compelling mystery because this 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 film is first and foremost it's it's a detective story too. It's a boarding school adventure story but it's, it's it is a mystery and that's what all the harry potter stories are when you think about it They're, you know harry's going around investigating something and this is the one that i think does that best because like we said like the the idea of the sorcerer's stone comes so late in the game before and even in its presentation it doesn't feel like there's any it doesn't it's not nearly as immediately compelling or interesting as this is you know because it doesn't feel active it feels so the idea of the stone feels so passive and it's just this thing happening in the background. Whereas, you know, this, the, the mystery here is so intertwined with like day-to-day activities as the story goes on. And it's a threat to them. Like in, in Sorcerer's Stone, it's kind of a vague, Oh, Voldemort might come back. This is like, no, <laughs> this thing is here. It's kill. It's trying to kill students. Hermione is a muggle born. Like, it's very much it's it's the, their their investigation is, is self defense and also it gets Ginny, 
Yeah, like it, I, th I think Chamber of Secrets doesn't get credit for just how great of a detective story it is, both the book and the film. Um, because like all of them have their mystery, but as the book the books start to do more and more as they go, and that's great. Like they're wonderful. But this one is, is it's, there's something I love in just the purity of this little children's detective story that we have going on here. Um, where it's all, it's all about the investigation that we talked about, you know, the scenes in the hallways where they're just walking through the hallways discussing clues and suspects. Is it Malfoy? Is it, is it, uh, I don't know, Snape? It's always Snape. Like, what is it? Who is this Tom Riddle? What is this diary? You know, why is this character acting weird? Like, there's just there's so much time just devoted to being in the mystery and and just figuring it out. I, I I just I love detective stories so much when they're done well, and I think this one really is. Yeah, the dis disguising as Crab and yeah. Goyle and like, you know, going like this is a mission. You know, like this is one of we're going over there. We're trying to figure out what does he know. What we're, what are we going to be able to learn from that? Being able to like diving into the book and like seeing the past and seeing what happened and. Uh, having Hagrid actually come into the the plot mm -hmm. the way he does and questioning what's going on here. Like it is, there's a lot of layers. The plot's kind of, it's, it's, it's very active in how it's unfolding. It's, it's not, we kind of think that this is the direction we're moving. And then we move in that for like forever. It's, we're constantly like getting new information and peeling something back and finding, finding new threads and, yeah, all the different suspects. You know, if first they convinced this Malfoy, then oh wait, was it? Then they get the diary. Was it Hagrid? We gotta talk to Aragog. And like it's, it's constantly you know moving and weaving. Um, while while the real suspect is right under our nose the entire time, which is you know a, a vital aspect of good you know mystery novels. And I, I and I think one really cool thing is the way even the teachers like freaking McGonagall this this all powerful woman like she is like deeply disturbed by like by what happened to, to Mrs. Norris like the teachers are kind of struck dumb like you know something serious is happening like Hogwarts is in danger um yeah that's all very well done um then it gets Quidditch uh and like Columbus's efforts to m make sure the effects were done right here, I, I, in my opinion, completely paid off. I think this this sequence holds up entirely. Like, there, sure, there's a moment or two of like, oh, that's obviously green screen, but all in all, this is just a great action sequence. Yeah, it's quite a quite a bit of an improvement. <laughs> mm -hmm. And like, the the camera work, because I'm assuming it's it's just an actor in front of green screen sitting on a broom. That's either stationary or maybe just like kind of bobs a little bit to get some motion. But like the motion has to be created by the camera. So they'll have the camera kind of swooping towards them and around them in these big elaborate movements to make it look like they're moving when they're stationary. And it does a really good job of mimicking that sense of motion. Yeah. And just the intensity of it. I I, I love the mad gibbering from the bludgers as they fly around. Like it's just like a hateful stream of nonsense coming out as they're trying to kill you. It's like a cannonball, the way it's blowing apart the wooden stands. And I love that effect. The it's like it is like a cannonball because like the effect it immediately reminds me of is like in the pirates movies whenever they're blasting each other's ships. Uh like seeing the the splinter of the wood and like the bass in that sound effect, mm -hmm. like it sounds freaking heavy and scary. A good mix of uh, practical effects in there, um, you know, with, with whatever kind of explosive they use or whatever to blow up the wood. And again, like, this scene is working into the mystery because we later learned it was Dobby trying to 
you know, trying to get him disqualified. Uh. But adding credibility to uh, Lucius as as a potential threat, and like there's, you know, or, you because know, you, you're just thinking like who would be enchanting it, and who I don't know. Mm-hmm. There's it. It's it's. I mean, it's basically what you said. Like it's it's more than just a cool action scene. Speaking of the pace, like we get that where like it's Dobby bewitched. Like, so it happens, you know, his bone gets, his, his arm gets deboned. I he goes to the effect. hospital wing, meets Dobby, gets some more exposition. And then Dobby disappears because they're bringing in Colin Creevy from the second attack, you know, which is again, raising the stakes. Like it, it's good pacing. Like these three sequences are all just flowing right into the other one. It's, you know, that's from the book too, but which I think, I think the book is just better paced than the first one, which probably helped them a lot. Uh, well, better paced isn't quite the word because I don't think the first one is badly paced. It's it's better paced as far as like telling one story rather than just introducing an entire world. Uh, but the squishy sound effects of the deboned arm and with, with Gilderoy just kind of like pulling it back and letting it flop. Uh, the important part is uh, you're not in any pain. <laughs> the, the, the bones are no longer broken. Yeah, that that like squishiness to it is just <laughs> so off-putting to me. Um, then we get the dueling club, uh, where we get to watch, um, where we get to watch, uh, Gilderoy Lockhart get beaten up a bit, which is very very satisfying. This is speaking of Gilderoy Lockhart. This is the scene that, that I could have, I would have believed had you told me it was directed by old, old Kenneth Branagh. <laughs> we get some glorious Dutch angles. The Dutch angles. That 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 pull back as the two the two duelers are walking away from each other. It's kind of keeping pace with them, pulling back. It's like there's so much movement and momentum in those shots. Um, can, can you all see me? Can you all hear me? <laughs> His gorgeous dueling costume. Yeah. He tosses the cape to the girls. Uh, do you think he's all right? Who cares? Uh, yeah, Rupert Grant, I think, is kind of the MP- MVP of this movie, among many. But, like, <laughs> just the uh, the amount that Chris Columbus relies on him for you know, to get the joke across by cutting to a Rupert Grant reaction shot, like, it, it probably, like, no exaggeration, it probably happens, like, 50 times in this movie where something has happened and we cut to him for one of his faces. And, you know, I'd say fully half the times it gets an audible chuckle out of me. Always count on a good uh, uh, cutaway from from Rupert. And the way Gilroy plays up the you, and if you don't mind me saying, it was pretty obvious what you were going to do. And it would have been only too easy if I wanted to stop you. <laughs> but also Snape is great here. Um, you know, we'll be sending Potter to the hospital wing in a matchbox. Might I suggest someone from my own house? Malfoy, perhaps? <laughs> the way he turns around and jerks his the, thumb. The snap. And, oh, it's so cool. He has it all planned out. Uh Malfoy, perhaps. <laughs> like, his hair is not that long, but he somehow he gets to swish as he spins. Oh, he's good. Um, and so this brings me to my uh, interesting th- uh, discussion. I think I want I want I want to continue as we go through the series. And that is the depiction of magic. I think Columbus's depiction is very very childlike. It's like, lots of loud swishing noises and bright flashing lights. Like we get three different spells like here. Um, between you know, Expelliarmus from Snape, uh, I forget the two. It was like Rictus Sempra, 
I think that's the one Harry does to Malfoy. Like, there's, there's three different spells, but all of them just do a loud flash and a swishy sound as the person flip, flips away behind you. Know, this is the one away. that um, makes you do a corkscrew backward 10 feet. As opposed to a somersault backwards 10 feet. Exactly. There are key differences that you have to look out for like that. <laughs> yeah, but like, like his, his magic is very loud in your face. Like, oh, we're doing magic and it's cool. Whereas like, as it goes, Koran does a very, um, a much more subtle and it's kind of like, very like, it's like really deep in the sound designs. It feels, for me, it even feels more powerful. Then you get to Mike Newell and it's just like flashing la- lights and loud noises again. And then I think Yates does something more in line with Coron. But like, I, I, I do, I do wish Columbus put a bit more effort into differentiating, like, you don't get the feeling that each spell is an entirely unique thing. Like this spell does this thing. Yeah. Um, whereas like, it's kind of like people waving wands around and we're not, really not sure what's going on here. Like when you read the books, when I'm, when I'm in like, by the time you get to order the Phoenix and they're in the ministry battling death ears, I'm like, you had, all right, do this spell now and then do this spell and Protego and, like yeah. you, you, you've learned so many of these spells and what they do and how they work that like you feel that if you were in that situation, like I could handle myself in a duel, um, because yeah. I know I, I know what these spells do. Or you would never get that picture watching Columbus's two first two films. That's that's a testament to the writing. Is that like by the time you're at the end of these books, you're just reading just an entire page of like made up magic words, and you're you're like, I know what this is. I know what this like you you're following along despite mm-hmm. the fact that half of the page is just like lore specific words now. <clears throat> yeah. Um, yeah. The, there's really no subtlety in this film as far as that's concerned. Very much a family film, but it, it, it does fit into the tone of the movie he's making. Yeah. So, so th- this brings us to kind of Harry's central arc um, where th- he's, you know, he's afraid, like, am I the heir? Well, he's not really afraid of being the heir of Slytherin, but he's afraid that maybe he is truly a Slytherin at heart. Um, because he, he obviously, he knows he's not doing the attacks, but the the internal doubts he's going through, um, like, where he's, he's learning about the similarities between him and Voldemort. And, and we mentioned in, the, in, the, in our review of Sorcerer's Stone how in the latter half of that book, after they sneak out and lose 150 points for Gryffindor <laughs> and everyone hates them, that, that kind of feeling of isolation and misery we get. Like, that, that was entirely absent from that movie. But I think it's re- done really well here after he yeah. speaks partial talking to the snake. And even Harry and Ron are like, what is happening? They drag him out into the abandoned classroom you know, to tell him, you're a partial tongue? And that, there's a great scene in the library where he looks around and just every single other table is full of children just staring at him. And I, I, like, it's the, the feeling of isolation and unease. That's what gets him to leave the library. And that's where he finds Justin Finch Fletchley uh, petrified and he's caught, you know, caught in the act. It's the, the, uh, the escalation of misery for Harry as just one thing after another goes wrong. And, you know, he has like this alternate world. This is his home. This is his real life in his view, but also is constantly having obstacles put in the way of fully integrating and fully becoming part of the society the way he would want to. You know, the, the Dursleys always keep him on the edges. They won't they won't allow him into their lives. And he wants to integrate into this world, but there's always just something pushing back, which is like great. Like that's that's drama. Like the character wants something and obstacles in the way that he has to overcome. But it, that that question of you know, is he a Slytherin? Like when he goes to Dumbledore's office and uh, the hat's like, I stand by what I said last year. 
you would have done well in Slytherin. And I, I think like it's a, it's a pretty it's a very simple arc, but I think it's it's really well integrated into the film. Till you know, to by the end where he's standing up to Tom Riddle, and or after that when um when Dumbledore's explaining to him, you know, why could you call the the sort of Gryffindor? I think it's a really well done little arc. You know, it's particularly particularly considering this film is starring like a twelve year old. Like you can't. There's only so much you can do with that. Uh, you know, while you're doing a magical world and a mystery, but I think they they were able to give a really solid arc for Harry, kind of integrated throughout it. Yeah, it's a lot easier to define his arc in this one than it is in Sorcerer's Stone. Um, and I like that his his fear is like it is twofold here. Because um, you know there is the I I'm not Slytherin, but all the or you know I'm not yeah I'm not a Slytherin at heart, and I know that I'm not. Well, they, they even kind of he knows he's not doing anything. But I feel like he he starts to wonder, you know, about his own lineage, maybe like the the fact that he's he is a parcel tongue and just the it's kind of like and people say something about you long enough and maybe you start to believe it. You know, again, it's never the oh maybe I'm the one committing this, but it is like, am I am I a Slytherin? Is there something in my blood? Is there? Like, why am I hearing this? And I think it's, it's like a really compelling idea, especially on first viewing when you don't know how it turns out, where like you, you, you're kind of empathizing with the people who are, you know, kind of leery of him, where it's like he, he is speaking it. He is hearing these things that nobody else is hearing The the hat is, telling him like i i i am this thing this being that like sees into people's hearts and i still stand by what i said like it's this idea and this fear is consistently being compounded and reinforced as the film goes on mm-hmm. uh and i think i think that's also that works really well hand in hand with with the mystery itself is because it's it's not just this plot mystery of like, oh, who's doing this? How's, what's going on? But like, it's it's not just up to the protagonist to just solve, like he stumbled across something. Like he is personally involved in the mystery. Um, and I mean, you said earlier, it's, it's not just a mystery that's just out there and we're solving it. It's kind of passive in the background. It's a threat to us, but even one, you know, like one layer further is, my identity in some way is kind of wrapped up in what's going on. And I'm, I'm scared how I may factor into all of this. And just the, the similarities they're laying out between him and Voldemort, where they're both orphans who live with muggles and hate it and view Hogwarts as their own home. Um, and this, this very go it alone attitude as well. I've, I didn't catch it until um, the rewatch before where with you know is, with Dumbledore saying you know is there something you wanted to tell me he's like no sir nothing uh, very well off you go then it's the exact same line the same yeah. tra- trade off of lines both times yeah there's there's something like there's really cool nuance like subtle like there there's the loud obvious comparisons where like people are explicitly saying things but there's just like the the two people are kind of hitting similar beats you know like this is I don't know. It's really cool. 
you know, long-running oh, storytelling. Also, Tom Riddle is, is a bit of a detective. At, at least the first time we see it, you know, he's uh, he's the one at that time. He's the one who's solving the mysteries and catching the, the bad guys. Um, and just the ever so slight look of disappointment in Dumbledore's eyes when Harry says, no, I don't have anything to tell you when he obviously has something to tell him. It's like, okay, like he, he deserves better from his students. Like, Harry's like, just, you know, get over yourself. Just tell him. Well, you know what? Dumbledore's got his own secrets. But I, I do love, again, that, that is something that is so true of the world of children. Like, it is so separate from the world of adults. And, you know, adults are, you know, like, even if you, like, love your parents and, like, trust them, there are some things that you just can't tell them. <laughs> it's, like, it, that, that, that's kind of the fuel for all of Harry Potter is, um... You know, just just tell us, tell a teacher. You don't you don't have to fight Voldemort alone. But no, they're adults. Only children can do this. Mm-hmm. Then we go to the Polyjuice potion scene. Uh, that stuff that stuff is so gross. <laughs> they did a great job of getting it to look as vile as the book talks about it being. Ugh, essence of crab. <laughs> That's a weirdly <laughs> quotable line to me. <laughs> How thick can you get? Ron's very quotable in this movie. Um, and I, I love the effect where they keep the original actor's voice and dub it over, you know, the, the whoever they're, they're um, like, it's like they have the actor playing the other actor, but they have the original actor's voice over it. What's funny um, is that whenever I say bloody hell, I'm, I'm doing my impression of Ron doing an impression of crab. Bloody hell. <laughs> bloody hell. Uh, I love the way he probably says it in every movie. It's always priceless. Um, yeah, the the two actors, Crab and Goyle, don't ask me which is which. Um, <laughs> I think Crab is wrong. Yeah. Uh, I only know that because of I want I really paid attention this time. Uh, so you have Jamie Waylett and Josh Herdman, and they do a really good job of mimicking Harry and Ron. I, I think I think particularly Waylett as Ron. And speaking of not being able to tell which is which, I love when uh, when they come across Percy is like. Um, he asked them who they are and what's what are your names and they're like uh which one is which i don't, I don't even know <laughs> they're just the they're, they're crab and goyle they are, they are an item together um <laughs> and i think <laughs> possibly the best line in the movie uh, is a tom felton's delivery of i didn't know you could read <laughs> i love that <laughs> and it's funny because like do you, do you do you notice the age gap here from that moment to the scene in um in the the Slytherin common room because Tom Felton is a tiny baby in the next scene like it's an effect scene because they had Harry and Ron morphing, but he looks like he's from Sorcerer's Stone in this one scene where he's like I guess I I guess I never picked up on that now I'm gonna never not notice it um and I I just I love that he this is just his life he's just <laughs> constantly monologuing to his idiotic cronies and they just sit there agreeing with him. Um, it's it's like such it ends up being such a funny stroke of luck because like their dynamic is like the most helpful one to have to like sneak into undercover you know (laughs) like to to find out that oh all i have to do is say like we're here like it's such a difficult idea is you know we don't know their vernacular like we don't know their go-to words and the way they present themselves or and like there's very there's specific ideas that we want to get out of of uh uh malfoy so like how is this going to get done and to find out that 
he just he he just monologues in his free time <laughs> it's like it's not like this like this poorly constructed overly convenient thing that happens like it's it's funny and it's believable but like the fact that oh all i have to do is sit on this couch and kind of <laughs> like prod the way that i want and he's just gonna go off and say everything that we would need him to say and i imagine this is what it's like in the malfoy home only uh Malf- uh only draco is the one on the couch and yeah lucius pacing around talking about that idiot uh, arthur weasley and th- then we get the uh, the diary scene which um just the atmosphere as he's just writing in the book with john williams music and just the, the, the little pause between you. Know, can you t- do you know anything about the Chamber of Secrets? Yes. Can you show me? No. Can you tell me? No. But I can show you. And the sing of music that swells and the light coming out of the diary. It's just simple, simple little filmmaking, but it is, it's really exciting. Talking about the atmosphere of this movie, I think like that that theme that like that theme that plays like as we're Tom at anything. Theme? Do what? Tom Riddle's theme? Yes. Like it's. It's so, I don't know. It, it's it's creepy but intriguing, and it's like it's the per. It fits the this mystery and feel so well. Yeah, I wrote down like when I was listening to it, like Tom Riddle's theme is a quiet nagging warning that you don't fully hear, and then once it gets you, know, and then towards the end when we actually get the full version, it's like this big giant warning screaming at you to run. But but when it's the smaller version, it's like it's like a nagging thought in the back of your head. Mm. I, I dude, again speaking of atmosphere, I love the way this uh, the the flashback is shot. Yeah. The, the sepia tone photography with Harry in color, um, it's just it's all in these huge wide Dutch angles and like it's it's almost like you're in a different place. Just the way he shoots it here. And like I, I could I could watch like an entire you know noir themed detective story in this visual style that he and uh, Roger Pratt had here, you know, and we get that line where you know is there something you wish to tell me from Dumbledore to, to Voldemort with the, the same look of disappointment. Oh, this this one is tinged a bit more with you know outright suspicion, and Chris, I want to talk about Chris. I think Christian Coulson is really good, um, like because like the first half he has to make it seem like. Riddle is kind of a good guy. He's sympathetic to Hagrid, but he has to do the right thing. I, yeah, I think that his confrontation with Hagrid, I think, is really well done because you know we, we get the look of suspicion from uh, Dumbledore, but I think if they did anything more of that, then they would have really hurt themselves with the mystery in the film. Uh, but, but you can, they you can let... play it off as he was he was holding off as long as possible. Because he knew it was Hagrid, but he was trying to protect him or something. Like, yeah, yeah. Like there's point. there's ways to make it mean what the movie wants you to think it means at that point, um, because he he plays the confrontation with Hagrid so straight. Like it's it's. I hate to do this, Hagrid, but monsters don't make good pets. Yeah, and and the fact that like after you know we don't cut away there we you know we bring Aragog into the story and all of a sudden like, like yeah this is. I, I mean, watching it for me or the first time, you know, my memory is just thinking, you know, they they didn't know, maybe they didn't know it was a snake. He sees a spider. He thinks, oh, it's been a spider doing all of this. Uh, there, there's the creature, you know, I, I found the culprit. Um, so, yeah, like it's, it feels 
Right. And, and you think maybe this is, maybe this is all Tom's role is like, this is the capacity he's going to serve in is he was the Harry of 50 years ago. Who was like, like you're saying, he, he was the guy solving the things he was this and that it, it, it doesn't, it's one of those ones where like you didn't even really have that suspicion at first because he functioned in a different way, but it's not, it's not unfair. Like you don't go back and you're like, ah, you were kind of, you weren't really playing fair whenever you presented him this way. Mm -hmm. It's almost like he's good at manipulating. Mm. Uh, I like how they layered Robbie Coltrane's voice over the younger actors. Then, so then there's a bit that we have a bit where Hagrid's kind of a suspect. (laughs) It's like, That'll be a cheery conversation. Hello, Hagrid. Have you been setting anything Man Harry loose in the castle lately? Man Harry? You wouldn't be talking about me now. <laughs> the way they all spin around. No. <laughs> the double take that <laughs> Robbie Coltrane does. Like the suspicion, like, oh, they are talking about me. <laughs> okay. Poor Hagrid. Uh, he deserves better. Should not have said that. I should not have said that. And it's crazy. Like, I never think about it, but... Rowling really goes out of her way to get get Hermione out of this story. Like there's like a third, like a, there's like a couple chapters where she turns into a cat. <laughs> she's stuck in the hospital wing, and then for like the last third, she's been um, petrified. Like they're, they're really it's a it's a bold move from uh, you know removing a third of this trio and a fan favorite. Um, you know for I, almost half of the film's runtime, um, but really. Ron and Harry, Rupert Grint and uh, Dan Radcliffe, they they could carry a movie on their own. Like, it's it's great. Like it's great when they're all together. But I think these two actors are charismatic enough to like you don't even really miss her. At least I don't. Maybe maybe some people do. Like I, I don't notice while I'm watching them in the forest. Can we panic now? Like I don't like. Oh, where's Hermione? This doesn't work without her. I'm not like that. For me, I do end up missing her. Like I. It's it's not necessarily it's not something that I would say is a problem with the movie because I think it actually worked like the the tearful reunion at the end doesn't work oh, if she's gone so for sweet. like five minutes you know like she has to be gone for a notable like um, an amount of time that you're like I kind of, I want to see her back so that I you know if you don't want her back then that reunion doesn't mean very much but in in terms of like subjective enjoyment. I really do love them as a trio. And like, I, I love, I love the spider scene, you know, with them. And I do think it's, it's probably everything works better whenever they're having to go into this and deal with it. Like surely she would have known something about giant spider. Like, Oh, well, you know, fantastic beast says blah, blah, blah. Or like, you know, (laughs) she would be able to help. Haven't you read Hogwarts a history? (laughs) Exactly. Like, there's to put these characters who are kind of the the least well educated on all of this stuff into a series like a a scenario that dangerous without it like that's that's really fun um but i do like towards the end i'm like man i i do really like that third personality that gets to play off of everybody <laughs> that's why they bring lockhart along <laughs> Uh, um, but like this, this is kind of the turning point. There's some, there's some. Once you've read all the books, you notice like there's a day that starts out perfectly normal, where they like there's a turning point in that day, and then just everything goes downhill, and we go into these this massive you know J.K. Rowling climax, and that's kind of happening as they go to Hagrid's ca- Hagrid's cabin. 
um, and witness his arrest. Um, this is another, you know, along with the you know, pure bloods and mudbloods. This is another really running theme in the series, and that is just, I think, this. I don't. I'm assuming Rowling does as well, but at the very least, the series has a very low view of kind of bureaucratic, self-interested government. Um, where you have this kind of rather pathetic Cornelius Fudge, like, I know you're probably innocent, but we have to be seen to be as, like, we have to be seen that we're acting. Like, it's not, a, you know, catching the killer isn't as important as long as the people believe that in this moment we're doing something. Like, who cares if we want to do this, but we have to do something. So we're going to throw an innocent man in prison for a couple months because people have to see us pretending to do things. Yeah, it's, it's, it gets worse and worse as the series goes, but it's like, well, it's, it's, it's all about optics and like, it's more important that people think you're doing a good job than actually doing a good job. Then we get to the Forbidden Forest and spiders. Uh, and I very much agree with Ron. Like, why couldn't it be followed the butterflies? Uh, it's a great set. I love I love the Forbidden Forest. I love just the blue light washing down on everything. Um, you feel lost like immediately there. Uh-huh. And holy crap, is there a lot of spiders? <laughs> it's, it's just Ron. Like, even before they're attacked, like Ron has my full sympathies. Where <laughs> like he tugs on Harry's Harry sleeves like ah, ah, he just pointing point all the spiders come in. Those dumb faces. Oh. And the uh, the sound the sound effects just like the the slithery creepy sound effects as the spiders slowly close in. Um, very it's a very good CGI. Like there's a mix of practical like Aragog's practical and a couple close ups are pra for the spiders are practical. But overall, they seem to be CGI. But it's all dark enough to where it works well enough. And they're spiders, so like, <laughs> if they look totally fake, they're I terrifying. I hate how hairy Aragog is. It, uh, that's a that's a really good uh, puppet. It freaks me out, man. Uh -huh. It's so... It's just so spindly and thin. Like, the arms are so, like... Ugh. I hate it. <laughs> The whole sequence as they're running away, just this thousands of spiders coating the ground, speeding after them. Um, yeah, I, I like Ron's like, you know, if Henry ever gets out of Azkaban, I'm gonna kill him. And I think he, I think the courts would agree that was entirely justified. Yeah, that's it is funny for as lovable as Hagrid is. Like, there are moments where you're like, I know your heart is in the right place, but like. You just sent two kids to like potentially to their death, and like no, but Aragog's lovable. He would never hurt anyone. He wouldn't hurt a like, fly. And, you know, in the books and movies, it's not like they're unaware of it. So it's not like oh, the the writing's kind of off there. But it, like Hagrid's his idea of of animals and these magical creatures and like no these couldn't they're sweet and harmless like you don't hate him because he oh sorry if you hear any noises i am currently house sitting for a friend with two big dogs so you may hear some some pattering or barking in the background um but like you you can't hate him for sending them off into the woods because he genuinely thinks you know, positively of these animals and doesn't really think that they're capable of these things. It's like, man, at, at a certain point in the series, you're like, Hagrid, come on, <laughs> dude. 
Right about when Grop comes in. <laughs> yeah, but now the game's afoot. They go to tell the te- teachers, and then we re- realize that um, Ginny has been taken. Her bones will rot in the chamber forever or something. Such a dark line, too. <laughs> and I love how all the teachers just, like, turn on Lockhart when he swaggers in. Like, when both Snape and McGonagall hate you, like, you've probably done something wrong. Then, uh... They go in, confront Lockhart. I love this scene where it's just the three actors going back and forth at it with uh, Kenneth Branagh. It's like, books can be misleading. You wrote them. <laughs> My dear boy, do use your common sense. Uh, and like, Radcliffe does a really good job in various scenes. Like, just like, keeping up with like some of England's best actors um, in these rather intense scenes. <laughs> Is there anything you can do? Yes. Now that you've mentioned it. I'd rather gift you with memory charms. Uh, I love that note of annoyance and kind of offense in his voice. Like, yes, I can do something. <laughs> and why didn't they use Expelliarmus in the scene? Like, it's a big moment in the book because we learn about it. That we learn about it at the dueling club. Then he uses it to get the diary from Malfoy. And then at this moment, he uses it on the teacher when he's about to obliviate them. It's like a great three beat. Like, they introduce it, but they don't use it again. Oh, that's weird. I, I never noticed that. This book is this movie is ruined. Yeah, so they go down to the chamber. Uh, I was like, if you die down there, you're welcome to share my toilet. <laughs> we didn't, we haven't mentioned her yet, but uh, Shirley Henderson is great. Again, she, another, she was like, like 37 iconic. years old when she did this. Whoa, I would have never yeah. guessed that. Yeah, she, she, yeah, she was, she was very, very, very much an adult. Wow. Well, I mean, pull, she pulls it off. Great. I mean, it's it's one of those ones where it's like if it was played the wrong way, and I don't know. I heard like I know some people who do think it's like it's a like a cringy character slash performance. But to me, it's like I I think it's writing that perfect line of like it's it's so eccentric, it's so quirky, it's so like idiosyncratic. There's nothing like there's not really it's so Hogwarts. Exactly. Like, yeah, it's it's this is one of the Hogwarts ghosts, and this is what this one is like. And you just gotta just gotta roll with it. Like mm. it's so endlessly impressionable. I was sitting in the U Bend thinking about death. And then while we're here, I know we already brought it up in the in the the production design, but the way like the sink is awesome, the way it pulls apart, gosh, I love it so much. So much, so much more than necessary, but I love so it. mechanical. Then Lockhart, uh, his memory charm backfires. <laughs> Just the Breno's blissful delivery of, "Hello, who are you, uh, Ron Weasley? Really? And uh, who am I? <laughs> I love his. <laughs> why do why his... does Ron bash with the head with the rock? <laughs> I don't know. I always thought that, that was like a weirdly aggressive move. <laughs> uh, but I I love. I love his pronunciation of like everything. It's just so right. And who are you? It's it's like it's like the perfect pronunciation with just the right amount of like charm and and pleasantness. It's, dopiness and dopiness. <laughs> uh, it's great. Then we go into the chamber of secrets, or or we're particularly want to talk about the door on the chamber of secrets. That locking mechanism. The way the I heads each pull back as the snake slithers around. Entirely practical effect. Amazing sound design. Just the clang as each one of the snakes pulls back. 
I get so excited when we when we go back there in um in the Deathly Hallows. Like, and it's like it's the same thing as it's the door, it's the set. Oh, I love this mm. place. Yeah. Um then we get into the Chamber of Secrets, which I said before, I think it's it might be this series crowning achievement as far as production design. Where you've got the walkway, just that the little the little layer of water. I don't know, just the splashing of the feet. It adds so much mm. atmosphere to the place. The the giant snake heads coming out of the water along the entire corridor, uh, the big open area with a giant Salazar Slytherin head. Like oh, it's it's so massive and just perfect. And it's like the, the perfect sickly green of everything. It's the perfect setting for a, a fantasy series, and just I, I don't know what it is, but the water makes it so much so much better it's like the i mean it's like a nightmare when you're trying to run and like there's some sort of obstacle there's you just it's it looks like this little bitty thin layer of water but just like the the constant splashing and you you feel like you can't run as fast on it maybe like it's it just it feels like it's just making things just a, a hair more difficult than it had to be i don't know there's just something restricting about it to me yeah and, and then we get christian colson going into his you know tom, his monologues as tom riddle and i think he's great like the, there's like he's the way he he's like really emotional and into it but also his eyes are completely dead and he never blinks and just that that mixture of like intensity and complete soullessness is happening and, and the way it's shot where like he's just kind of he's just walking around Harry but it's this long lens that's kind of spinning with him and there's a lot of momentum in it the, the mixture of complete confidence in himself as Lord Voldemort he is the greatest sorcerer of all time and he knows it but also the hint of fear and desperation because he needs to know how Harry this stupid boy defeated his future self and it's like he's playing a lot of different layers as he's just doing his, his traditional villain monologue. Uh, and I, I think he, he's just a very, it's a very intense and memorable, memorable performance for me. Yeah. I, I think he really nails that transition. Uh, that so like his performance becomes increasingly sinister as that scene plays out. Uh, and I know, so I like the design of like putting the letters in the air <laughs> and like this, this is a thing both with the book and the movie, but I know people who think that that's a little hammy, a little cheesy of like the, he, he, he calls used, himself Lord Voldemort. <laughs> that's the thing. I'm like, this is a teenage edgelord. This is exactly what he'd do. Like, I know it's now the name that sticks around with them into adulthood. And it's like, it's the name people can't fear. Or I mean, people, people can't say because of fear, like what the point is it it originated when he was like this isolated self-absorbed teenager who thought he was better than everybody absolutely he'd use his name to spell out a new like yeah i i think it works yeah um and just with the reveal like oh this tom riddle who we who we first think of as kind of this friendly uh, you know voice from the past no this is lord Voldemort as a child like bringing him okay. and we talked about the first film as to whether what whether or not it successfully brought across the the mystique of Voldemort he who must not be named um whether or not it fully got across the terror the wizarding world lived in of him 
And I think this one does that. Um, going back to that scene in the bookshop where it's like, you know, very bold of you to use his name. Well, very foolish. And Hermione gives a, but it's originally Dumbledore's line, but, you know, fear of a name only increases the fear of the thing itself. Like, it, 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 it feels like it's integrated better into the world. And there are other references that I'm blanking on throughout the film, but we kind of get that idea of just... Well, just the idea of the heir of Slytherin, kind of like he's he's very wrapped up in this idea. Yeah. So just by association, there's some level of presence that hang of his that hangs over the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and like just in the way he's like, you know, surely you didn't think I'd keep my filthy Muggle father's name, and you just think like there's so so much of everything he is is just driven by self loathing, like his obsession with you know with a, a wizarding purity is like driven by his own self-loathing at being a half-blood. And again, that's another similarity between Harry and Voldemort. Is they're both half-bloods. Man, I, something else that I think that this scene does really well in, in terms of like, just creating, continuing to um, facilitate this kind of fear of, or, or presence of Voldemort in history uh, I think it's really bold to to humanize him like this this early on to be like, oh, here's here's teenage Voldemort, but they're able to do it without it being, I don't know, like hokey. Like, and I think it's between the writing and and the performance. But like when he's, I mean, it, there's there's a level of crossover to me between his delivery and and Lucius's delivery with a lot of his lines of just like it it feels like there's just nothing but like you feel every bit of contempt that you're meant to feel with all of these lines. Um, yeah. And so to, to like get this level of peak into, into his absolute hatred, like it's, you, you know, everybody's so scared and you you're continuing to learn why the world is so scared of, or why the wizarding world is so scared of Voldemort and to just be exposed to this level of absolute hatred is like unnerving. Um, and it really does make him feel that much. Like if, if this man's power matches his hate, then like I get why he was so scared or why people were so scared. But we also see the holes and the weaknesses. And like, it's so vital to remember that this is, he's only a man. And that's why, you know, uh, you know, Dumbledore always calls him Tom and, and Harry carries on that like no matter how evil and like how much like Ray finds he gets by the end and crazy powerful ultimately he is still just a man you yeah. know, trying to be a god trying to reach for immortality um, which is this diary you know, is one of his first attempts at reaching for immortality wouldn't that have been crazy if if two of his plans came back and we just got two Voldemorts running around <laughs> They, they they would kill, the first thing they would do is hunt down and kill the other one. Yeah, yeah, that that, that that's a no go. Um, then we get the battle with the basilisk, and the the basilisk is amazing. Like the CGI effect, I think is pretty flawless. And then we get the close ups, like when they're in the tunnel and it's blind but hunting him, and just Ugh, the, that's the such a face. creepy. The bloodied eyes getting that close to me mm-hmm. always makes me kind of like back up. Like this is man, yeah, just the, the subtle. I'm surprised I got through this as a kid between the subtle like animatronic movements and the sound design like 
I'm fully convinced this is a living creature. And then when it's full CGI, like, I don't, I barely even notice it. Yeah, it's, it's the 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 effect itself is like flawless to me. Like this feels legitimately dangerous, and in a way, the the climax of the first film did not at all. Like, this is a freaking giant snake. There's yeah. nothing Harry can do. He's just running for his life the whole time. Yeah, when he's when he's like having having to like hack at it when he's up on the statue, I'm like, this man, this those are sharp teeth. Like this is a big freaking monster that's getting really close. And I love like there's multiple layers of threat with this climax. Like Ginny's over there, she's dying, and her dying is leading to Voldemort's resurrection. <laughs> also a giant snake. Like even like Harry's gonna die, Ginny's gonna die, Voldemort's gonna be back. Like, there's a lot happening. There's a lot of threat, a lot of danger. And then the final thing, and I love how there's a lot of blood happening here. Like, this is the pecking the eyes out of the bloody eyes. Mm. The way the snake, the, the basilisk's nose gets progressively mangled as he's slamming into the rock. I love um, the sword going through the head. Yeah, too. it's brutal, man. I love and it. The, the, for the rest of the movie, it's just like coated in blood. They got they got away with a lot. I, I I don't think you could get that in a PG movie anymore. Because they don't even do the thing where like, oh, you color grade it down to black or something. They don't. No, it's just it's bright red blood. Yeah. So we have where like Harry's, you know, Harry's dying, and <laughs> Tom and Tom Riddle is still monologuing. Uh, but the effect of stabbing the fang into the diary oh, is really good. Again, more blood. Well, ink. Yes. Yeah, but man, that comes across as blood to me. Just the squirting out of the pages. Um, it, it's it's a really cool effect from the book that I think was just perfectly translated. And just the burning holes appearing all over Riddle and the screaming and agony. Um, like it's it's so sad. Like we've been it's an intense climax. This final it's a it's it's a really clever thing, like using the basilisk fang that just killed him to kill Tom Riddle. Um, right, you know, right at the final, it's just a clever thing. It's so satisfying to watch him scream in agony and explode. Um, and and uh, like it's a good, it's a mixture of makeup and uh, Daniel Radcliffe's acting. But like he really does look like he's about to die there. Yeah, very sickly looking. The sweat and grime, and even as he's about to die, you know, he's trying to make sure Ginny knows how to get out of there and make sure she's okay. Dude, look, he's a real hero. Um. But then the Deus Ex Machina of Fox comes in, and I'm okay with it because oh, we didn't talk, we didn't talk about Fox, but that animatronic is is crazy. There's a story where um that uh Richard Harris on set thought it was a real bird because <laughs> it was so lifelike, and like that scene in the office before he bursts into flames, like yeah, I I buy that. Yeah, it's a very cool effect. I love I love the visual of it like coming out of the ashes too. Yeah. Um then we go back to Dumbledore's office again and kind of, to kind of get the final um the final exposition dump. And there's a there's a lot of lore happening here that we don't quite realize, you know, if I'm not mistaken, he transferred some of his powers to you uh the night he gave you that scar. And he also put a little bit of his, you know, his soul into your head, also into the book you just destroyed. But yeah, let's not worry about that for another couple more books. But um and we get kind of the, the final the final bit on his fears. He possessed many of the same qualities that Voldemort himself prizes. Why did the sorting have placed you in Gryffindor? Because I asked it to. Exactly, Harry. It is not our abilities that show who we truly are. It is our choices. And you know, it's, it's a very simple, you know, message, but I think like very, you know, vastly important for a child. Like that 
idea. Like you could come from the most, like you could you could have either you know come from an evil lineage or you'll come from you know no matter like what you are or like no matter um where you came from or you know, the fears you have about yourself. It's the choices. Like all you have to do to be better is to choose. It's just a very simple, powerful message. I think. Yeah, I think it comes across really well. I, I love that delivery too. Whenever he's like, "Cause I," Harry says, "I, I wanted it to," or something. Uh, because I, because I asked it to. Oh yeah, and just like the exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Richard Harris is again great here. And you know, if you want proof that that you belong in Gryffindor, I suggest you look more closely at this sword. I'm not. I'm not a fan of the sword's design. <laughs> That's exactly what I was about to say. Oh. Yeah, I it's weird. I had a like a toy sword as a kid, and this looks almost exactly like that. And I even as a kid, I didn't think it was particularly cool. I'm like, nah, man, I'm maybe it's because I'm like I grew up with freaking Narsil. <laughs> so like, no, nah, man, that's not a sword. You don't know. I'll show you what a sword looks like. It's this freaking it's so tiny these, and yeah. too many jewels. The handle is so short. Like it feel, looks like a child's dress or like some prince would wear yeah. to a ceremony. Um, exactly. Also, yeah. It looks like a ceremonial symbolic sword. It, it does not at all look like something freaking Godric Gryffindor would have wielded. Why does Harry grab it by the gross bloody blade when he goes to look at it? It, it, it irks me so much. He like picks it up with his left hand by the blade. Like, what are you doing? There's a handle. <laughs> just one of those like you kind of wish the director like hey uh, you know daniel what are you doing <laughs> why are you going for that bud uh then malfoy storms in <laughs> uh, it's so good like i i love the um the the, the like the noir lighting on his face with like, the shadows is just the light across his eyes um as he spits you know his venomous line at uh at a uh, harry and dumbledore and I, I love confrontations where everyone kind of has to lie like they all know he's guilty but they can't prove it, so he's like, "Oh, what, did you catch the culprit?" Um, I see. <laughs> and and uh, Dumbledore is very sweet. Threat, you know. One hopes no that no more of Voldemort's old school things fall into innocent hands. The consequences for the one responsible would, would be severe. <laughs> it's like it's the sweetest little voice, but also I will kill you very much if you do this again. I love watching Voldemort. Or Voldemort. I love watching Dumbledore threaten people. Yeah. It's just because you know if there's anybody in this entire universe, like this 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 fictional place that can like back up a threat, it's him. And so whenever like those little moments where you really feel like he's he means it, it's like ah, I hate Lucius. And so to hear Dumbledore say that just feels good. <laughs> and the amount of venom in his line, oh you do, do you? And why don't you prove it? It's just the amount of venom he can squeeze into every single word. Then he goes and frees Dobby. Like I, I love J.K. Rowling climaxes because there, there's so much happening. Like there's, there's so satisfying. Like all these little story threads that are happening, like invisible setups that all get paid off in her climaxes, and they just they make the the, the ending of each book just so warm and fuzzy. Dobby is free. He's a free elf. And I don't want to think about that anymore because it gets sad. But at least for now, he's free and happy. It's it's such a feel-good moment. Just to, just the cherry on top. And another weird choice. It looked like Malfoy is going for the killing curse. He was like, Avada! 
I, 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 the thing is, I know that Malfoy w is totally willing to willing and able to kill children. Like he proves that several times, but I don't think he would do it under Dumbledore's nose. That's um, okay. Yeah, that is weird. Like, cause it's like the, I can't think of anything else that would be going on in that scene. You know, it it feels like we we just. We saw an attempted murder that was like, had Dobby not intervened, would be like, yeah, he, he too, like in front of Dumbledore's office. That's how he <laughs> chose to do it. Yeah, no, didn't think that went out. Um, let me get the, the end of school feast um, and the reunion between Harry and, Her Harry and Ron and Hermione is so sweet. Uh, the joy on Rupert Grint's face when it pops back out of the line of students as uh, Hermione comes running in. <laughs> like she goes and gives Harry the huge hug. Then they pause and awkwardly shakes hands with uh, Ron. Like, I love these dorks. They're, they're, so, they're so wonderful together. Um, and you, you see the, you know, the seeds of young love between um, Hermione and Ron. It's it's so this it's such a like a satisfying like the last several minutes of this movie are so satisfying with the the scene like the last exchange between Harry and Dumbledore and then freeing Dobby and then uh, the reinstatement of Hagrid and the reunion of some ruddy bird called Errol. All exams have been canceled. And her mind is, Oh no. <laughs> like, it's just, it's such a rewarding ending. It's like, here you go. Here you go. Here, like, here's another feel good moment. Here's another. How do you feel about the applause for Hagrid? Because this is something that's very controversial in the Harry Potter fandom. Like, a lot of people find, like, oh, the students didn't like Hagrid. It's so stupid and cringy. Uh, oh, shut up. I don't care. <laughs> I, I, I do think it's a bit much. Like, it's like this. This they're layering on so much icing by the end. It's like I just it's layer a lot it of sugar. I love feeling good. So yeah, I, I I I just I think it is kind of cringy, but I would be lying if I said I didn't have kind of a silly grin on my face as it's all you know Hagrid's wiping tears. That's and... the thing. It's the sweet ripe wipe of tears that he's you know he he can't be a wizard, but he still belongs there, and he's just just let him have this nice moment. <laughs> All right. Um, so I think we pretty well covered most of the movie. Any other uh, aspects you wanted to mention uh, before we move into the score? Uh, no, I think I'm good. Uh, did you get a chance to listen to any of the music? Uh, yeah. Um, any other tracks you wanted to mention? The, to me, the, like the stand, I liked all of it. Like I really, I think uh, Fox's theme is really, really cool. Mm -hmm. uh, I like all the variations on the the themes from the first one. The uh, Gilderoy Lockhart's is, I, I think, really fun. But the one that I just, it's, it's, uh, it's Tom Riddle's theme. They're just like, like uh, so when I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, like whenever you say Chamber of Secrets, what I see is slow panning shots down, you know, dank hallways with puddles on the ground and, and torches on the side of the wall. And blood on the walls. But, and blood on the walls. But what I hear is this, like, it's, it's like, it's all of these things together. It's, it's the movement of a camera down a firelit hall with puddles on the ground and this theme playing. Like this theme is so intrinsically linked with like the atmosphere of this movie to me. 
Because every time we get a new clue or we increase suspicion, we're just or we're just like walking down a hall and it's kind of quiet. Like we, this theme is so ever present with the plot as it moves. It's like it's I don't know. It's just so connected to the identity of this movie with me or for me. Yeah. So the the, the, the fox ones you have uh, fox the phoenix, and then fox is reborn. Like ones the um. The first one, it's a bit like, it sounds a little bit like Harry's Wondrous World. It has kind of a similar mood to that, but it's much more relaxed. Um, and Fox's Reborn is a kind of a quiet version of that. Gilderoy Lockhart's the Gilderoy Lockhart one. The, uh, it's very big and bumbling. But also, I, I love there's these little harpsichord stings going on throughout there. Um, meeting Tom Riddle is kind of the whole the Tom Riddle theme. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a... It's, it does sound different. Like, there's a lot of the same themes as the first one, but it's not as reliant on uh, Hedrick's theme and uh, Harry's Wondrous World. But if, like, every other track on that first soundtrack was just a, a variation of that. Here, it's, a, it's way less just, like, buoyant and exuberant yeah. and jubilee. It's, it's more just, refined, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it's, it's a pretty good score. Um, so, star rating, James, uh, how, what do you give this film out of five stars and how do you rank it with the rest of the series? Uh, so I give it a uh, four out of five. Uh, I really, really like it a lot. It's It moves super well. Uh, it looks incredible. There's never really a moment where I'm like, oh man, that looks really bad. Uh, Other than mention, Harry picking I, up the sword by the blade. Other than that. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> uh, we didn't mention I, I even I really like like the cat effect on uh, Hermione. Um, <laughs> it's or the the weird like kind of like the skin bubbling up whenever they're they're transitioning back to to Harry and Ron. It like so it looks great. It sounds great. I love the atmosphere. I love the atmosphere of this movie so much. And the the finale is just like genuinely spectacular. And so yeah, I. I think it's just it's a it's a really great movie. Um, so my rating with just these two so far is uh, is number one, Chamber of Secrets. Number two, Sorcerer's Stone. Yeah, I also give it four out of five stars. I'm very tempted to give it a four and a half out of five. Um, like it's it's right on the edge there. Like so maybe two point uh, four point two five. Uh, but the, 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 there's a big critique that I did not mention at all, um, and that is the length of this film. Um, and it's, it, I'm not the person like, oh, the film is too long. It's, you know, it's over two hours. Screw this film. But it, it's a two, two hour and 40 minute film. That's a you know, children's detective mystery. Um, and it, I, and it's funny because I think this film is very well paced where you like, it, it's never boring. There, there are really, there are no slow bits, but I think by the time you get to the end, just the sheer magnitude of a two hour and 40 minute film, that is kind of a, as light and fluffy as this one ways on it and I, I think I think the problem is that Columbus like the in, in the editing like every shot like every shot is held on for maybe a half second too long every scene plays out about 10 seconds so like they're like all a bunch of reaction shots that aren't necessarily necessary like he it, it feels a little padded like not enough to where it's like grating and boring but just the sheer magnitude of every single scene being 10 30 seconds too long kind of adds up by the time you're at the two hour and 40 minute mark. Like, like the, it's, it's, it's a trek. Yeah. And well, it's so hard for, that's really difficult for me because it's like, if we talk about the scene, 
Like, is this scene held on too long? Well, within the context of just this scene, I kind of like how long we hold on. Like, I like that we keep pressing in, you know, we keep holding on to these mysteries. And and so it's like within the context of the scene itself. And the, it's, it's more like just like the, the kind of the, the holding the camera after they've said their line and they're kind of just but, looking. Like, but that's what I like. It's like, it's like and. you let that before you move on, before we like find a new idea, we just like, we, we give our last line and then we just, we let the camera sit on that line for a bit before we move. Like I, that's what it, it feels like. It's like, here's what we just learned. Now, instead of like cutting to the next thing, like the camera just by holding on to this, this reveal and like these characters in this room, it feels like the movie's like pressing you into the mystery. Um, and so I, I like it in the moment. And so it's hard for me like, oh, you shouldn't have done this. But when it, within the context of a movie that's almost three hours, it's like, yeah, maybe it is a little padded. So Yeah, I and I, I think another issue is there's a lot of repetition in the dialogue. Like, it's 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 very, um, I'm not sure what the word, like, it's, it's very on the nose. Like, every single thing is, like, said and then repeated. <laughs> I love the character interest. Like, every single time a character walks in, someone will very very like obviously look at them hello ronald weasley my best friend like like even if the characters all know each other like, like when Ginny runs in and runs out like oh Ginny, she's been talking about you for ages like he knows it's Ginny. <laughs> it's it's kind of funny like, like how often like, a name will be like very obviously stated but also when every scene happens like at the end of every dialogue scene about the mystery they'll have like the wrap-up line where, like they'll kind of sum up everything we learned in this scene even though we just saw it, like there's a lot of that happening, you know, to keep the kids up to date, which I, I understand you know, it is a family film and it's a pretty intense mystery. Um, but like, there's, there's a, like, I feel like if you, if you cut out the repetitions of lines and maybe trimmed off like five seconds on every scene, you could get like 10 minutes out of this movie or like without even changing a single thing about it. Um, and there's, there's a couple of things like, I, like I don't, you could probably trimmed out moments like Hermione turning into a cat. No, like, you can't. <laughs> stuff like that is the stuff that I held on to as a kid. I'm like, oh, this is the part where she's a cat. Isn't that funny? Okay, well, I don't... <laughs> stand Come correct. on. I stand Gabe. corrected. Well, like, I, 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 it's, it's only a tiny problem because I said, like, this is my go-to film. I, I, It's the most chill, relaxing watch. I love every second of it. But it is two hours and forty minutes. It's it, it's, a, it's a commitment. Um, I like the, the, the extended edition is over three hours. It's crazy. Um, and I, and so, yeah, so I give it off four out of five stars, very close to four and a half. Um, only problem is the length. Uh, and I rank it Chamber of Secrets and Sorcerer's Stone. Um, so as far as the, the box office, it uh, earned 261 million domestically and uh, 616 million in the foreign markets on its initial release for a total of 887 million on its $100 million budget. This one actually cost 25 million less than the first one making it the cheapest in the series by a good ways. Um, I don't understand that because this movie is so much bigger. Than yeah, Sorcerer's and Stone. better looking. Yeah, so I'm guessing they just, they had all the sets, all the costumes. They, were, they must have been able to just reuse a lot. Also, I guess not having to shut down production and restart, they just kind of, it was all just one big long production. That must have helped. So after a few re-releases, it stands at a... a 879 million it's roughly a hundred million dollars less than the uh, the first film um which is, but it's still enough to make it the fifth highest grossing film of all time at the time which is not not adjusted for inflation but it was, it was a massive hit 
Um, it stands at number seven in the series, both domestically and worldwide, over only Prisoner of Azkaban and the two Fantastic Beasts films. Um, and it was the second highest grossing film of uh, 2002 worldwide, just under the two towers. Uh, domestically, it came in at number four under Spider-Man, the two towers, and Attack of the Clones. There's a lot of stuff happening this year. Golly, what a pop culture explosion. Yeah. Yeah, so it's a lower grossing one in the series. However, like, as I said, it was fifth highest grossing film of all time. So it's not really a knock against it. As far as this reception, I got an 82% on Rotten Tomatoes and a 63 on Metacritic, which is about a percent a percent or so lower than Sorcerer's Stone's rating. Um, and that's pretty close on all, all, all around. I checked, like, IMDb, Letterboxd. And then the audience ratings on Rotten Tomatoes and Metacritic, it comes in about equal or just under. Um, so it's pretty close to the first one's rating. One kind of humorous thing I noted in a lot of the initial reviews, this is this is kind of something that happens in a lot of children's fantasies. Like people complain, oh, it's too dark and scary and grotesque. And like, oh, shut up. I, I'm always rather amused by adult critics kind of worry. You're far more worried about the darkness of children's films than I've ever seen any child being like, is it a good movie? Come on. Like. Do you re- do you remember what you watched when you were a kid? Like, especially like, man, you grew up in the 80s. You were <laughs> watching the Goonies and like the Labyrinth and stuff growing up. I don't want to hear it. Yeah, but otherwise, it seems to be pretty well um, well received. As far as I feel like this one's legacy is interesting. This one, it kind of seems to be like the forgotten one in the series. Like people, I think people complain more about films like Goblet of Fire the Half-Blood Prince, or a Deathly Hollows Part 1. Um, but this one just kind of rarely gets mentioned. And like when you look at ratings on Letterboxd, it's all it's very often towards the bottom. Like, I, I the, the, like the real book purists, they love the first two films. But I feel like among general movie audiences, like, all the love goes to Sorcerer's Stone, and this one just kind of gets left behind. It was funny. One of my co-workers yesterday... Uh, he saw that I, I had posted asking for people's thoughts on it. He's like, oh, Chamber of Secrets is the absolute worst one of the series. Uh, um, like, it, it does get a weird amount of hate, and I'm I'm kind of baffled by it. Yeah, I don't I don't really get it. Like, I feel like, you know, it's, there are, it is such an easy comparison with Sorcerer's Stone. They feel, to me, they feel very much companion movies because they are so similar in the, especially in the, in the scope of the series as a whole. And like, there's, there's a bit of me that understands the deference to the original. It's like, it is the, it's the one that introduced us to the world. It's the one that I first saw. It's blah, blah, blah. I get it. But I'm not convinced that these people putting it in last place don't enjoy it in the moment more than sorcerers. Like, like, man, that you you're you're not gonna convince me that the whole the 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 now the stone is in your pocket because of the mirror blah 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 like you're not telling me that you're having more of a good time in that finale than you are with the freaking snake battle and yeah. like and that Hogwarts doesn't just feel more cool and ancient and mysterious and dangerous in this one than than it did and sorcerers like everything like the, things are just working better. Are you not more connected moment to moment to? actors who can act like does that not at all raise the bar of your enjoyment at all um i i, I think it might be the length I and mean, maybe maybe there's a bit of feeling of been there done that i could say if someone doesn't have all the pro the technical problems that i do with the first film this one just feels like oh it's just another one kind of the same 
if you're not looking as closely at the filmmaking and the performances and the storytelling and the writing and the tone and the pacing, like maybe if you're not paying attention to all that, this is, but I, 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 I would think like even subconsciously, if you're not pointing it out, like don't you, don't you at least feel that this movie is better paced? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, there's, there's some validity to that. Like, cause I mean, their companion, their companion movies to me because they, I, I do think they are very similar. It is, it is, they're, they're two very similar movies in which this one <laughs> succeeds in almost every category more, but like, it, it really like, you know, you, you get there, there's a similar tone. This one feels a bit more dark, you know, this one, the atmosphere is a lot more looming. Um, but you know, it, it's, it's a mystery. It's a, you know, they're both longish movie or, you know, they're both longer movies. We kind of le- build up to this. I, I don't know. Yeah. There's, there's a similar vibe, you know, and it's especially notable whenever you, if you're doing like the first three in a row and you're like, wow, Azkaban feels markedly different from what we've seen. So to some extent, I do get the, it, it's a pretty familiar movie just going right into it after the first one. But I, I think that as a criticism only gets you so far and certainly not far enough to put it like, you know, below Goblet of Fire. <laughs> <laughs> there, there is a depressing amount of people who really like Goblet of Fire. Oh, that would be a whole discussion on its own. Um, yeah, I, but I love this film, and that seems a good, a good place to end this on. So uh, that was our review of Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. I hope you enjoyed it, and if you did, I'd like to ask you again to please uh, take a moment to give us a rating and review on iTunes. Uh, like us on Facebook at Franchise Fatigue Podcast. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram as at Franchise Pod. And if you want to find our other episodes, you can go to FranchiseFatiguePodcast.com. Also, we are part of the Pop Americana Content Network, and you can find our show as well as a bunch of other awesome shows at popamericana.wixsite.com slash popamericana. And where can people follow you, James? You can follow me over on Letterboxd. I am there as JL Hamry. It's J-L-H-A-M-R-I. And you can find the both of us over on the Outer Rim, a Star Wars group uh, on Facebook. We are admins along with some friends uh, and we are a, a group that wants to facilitate positive, enjoyable conversations about Star Wars. We're, we're looking forward to things and having fun with, with everything going on. And we've got a weekly series of reviews going on over Bad Batch episodes now. So uh, definitely feel free to join us over there. And I am also on Letterboxd, and there's Gabriel Green. You can find me on, on uh, Instagram as Gabe the Great Green, and I have a YouTube channel called Greenery01, where I make movie-based music videos and trailer mashups and other fun stuff like that. Um, so next week, I uh, will be Alfonso Cuaron, or not next week, in the uh, next episode, will be Alfonso Cuaron's uh, Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, which is another movie that I'm somewhat fond of. Oh, boy. That's going to be three hours. <laughs> Yeah, ah oh, man, I'm excited for this one. I I watched this once several years ago before I did for the the marathon, and all I remember, like I remember key bits, but I remember like there was just something about it. I'm like I I remember loving it. I remember being like surprised at how much I loved it. And so it had a lot of hype to live up to whenever I rewatched it for the marathon. Uh, after I finished the book series, I'm like, holy crap, this lives up to it. It's so good. Finding unity on on series like this, as far as the best one, is can be kind of rare. Like, But this is the one that everyone says, oh yeah, Prisoner of Azkaban is the best. Um, like yeah. there's, 
there's no doubt about it. So that's going to be fun. All right. Um, so until next week, uh, we will see you in the Wizarding World. Let us hope that Mr. Potter will always be around to save the day. Mm-hmm.